since this is resurrection weekend for us and I am going to talk resurrection tomorrow I thought we would do some eschatology the valley of dry bones today was one of the readings that leads into the two sticks which leads into the blog and may blog war there's a pastor that has a blog that he calls blog and may blog so now that's stuck in my mind that leads to the Gog and Magog War, which leads, of course, to Revelation. And the reading starts in Ezekiel 36, and I don't remember where the beginning of it was. Let's pick it up at 33. That may be actually a little earlier than what we read today. So thus says the Lord God, On the day that I will cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being a desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around shall know that I am the Lord, I have rebuilt the ruined places, and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. So first thing to notice in here, what is the character of the cities in verse 35? They are now fortified. Remember that word. Verse 37. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like a flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This whole section that we're reading is one of Ezekiel's statements of the new covenant. What are the conditions of the new covenant? They will be my people, I will be their God. Israel returns to the land. Israel and Judah reunited. So Israel and Judah are reunited and Israel is returned to her land and God will be their God, they will be his people. All the nations will know he is God, and he will write his Torah on their hearts. All of those are the conditions of a new covenant. Those conditions apply right now. No, they do not. And by the way, when was Ezekiel written? In, in the historical period of Israel, when's Ezekiel written? During the Babylonian exile. So Ezekiel is writing as Israel is being sanded off flat. You remember that the northern kingdom has been gone at this period for over a hundred years. The southern kingdom is on its way out as Ezekiel is writing. So from Ezekiel's point of view, Israel has been destroyed. It no longer exists as a nation. The northern kingdom is scattered and lost. The southern kingdom is either in Babylon or on its way. So this is written at that time in their history. Okay, that, that's an important thing to know. So some of this is probably written in Babylon. He did some prophesying before they were destroyed, but when they went to Babylon, he went with them. Who stayed behind? Jeremiah. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel are writing at the same time. Jeremiah does not go into exile. Ezekiel does. But the point is, at this point in the book, all of Israel has been destroyed. So what this is talking about then is God's promise to bring them back. 
And part of that promise is that I will cleanse them from all their iniquities and I will cause the inhabited and waste places to be rebuilt. You all remember Deuteronomy. You have the new covenant in Deuteronomy also, right? And the deal in Deuteronomy, you have two circumcisions of the heart. The first circumcision of the heart, I think in Deuteronomy 11, is Moses says, you guys circumcise your heart because the better job you do, the better chance you have of surviving in the land. But at the end, Moses and God say, you are not going to be able to get the job done properly, so at the end I will circumcise your heart, at which point it will be done correctly. So the new covenant then is the circumcised heart with the Torah written upon it. It is in Deuteronomy 10.16 is the first one. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. And then Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. So as Ray was saying this morning, the tablets that you're bringing to God are your heart. Remember tablets of stone are metaphors for hearts of stone. So when you're bringing your heart to God, you are bringing this tablet of stone, if you will, and you're asking God to write upon it his Torah. So the next thing that's going to happen is he first promises he's going to bring them all back. Then we go to the Valley of Dry Bones. God takes him to this valley and he looks at all these dry bones and he asks, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you know, God, I don't. So then, what does God tell Ezekiel to do? Prophesy. He tells him to speak to the bones. He tells him to call the wind. Now, why is that? You have got Hebrews buried all over the world because God has scattered them all over the world. So when he brings the breath of the wind from the four corners of the world, what he's talking about is the Hebrews that have died over the centuries all over the world. He's bringing back their breath. So why does God tell Ezekiel to do that? God has given us authority on the earth. He has never taken it back. So God has made it his policy that when he acts, he acts through a man or a woman. He's not sex specific. He acts through a person. So when God wants the bones to be called together, and the breath to be called to them, he has to get a prophet to say it. One of the reasons that it's 2,000 years from the flood until the time of Yeshua is because God was getting prophets to speak the prophecies that were necessary for Yeshua to become incarnate and for Yeshua to do the things that he was going to do. He had to have people call for all of that, and he used his prophets. So as you go back to the prophecies, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of these prophets, and you read prophecies of the Messiah, what God is doing is he is getting people to speak those things so that when the time comes, a man has said all of those things, so when everything is in place, God acts. Don't get me wrong. God does it this way because that's his policy. If God had a different policy, there's not anything we could do about it. It's his policy, he made that policy, he decided it, and he acts in accordance with his own policy. It is not something that anybody is forcing him to do. He made that decision, he decided to do it that way, he does do it that way, and we can look at it and depend upon it, but we can't force it. So 
The first step in this process begins back in Ezekiel 36. The next step is Ezekiel 37, where God sends the prophet, 37:13, And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I am interpreting that as a resurrection, because that's what it says. And one of the, I think, really lovely teachings of the rabbis is you had the generation that died in the wilderness, and the rabbis say, at this point, what we're talking about here in Ezekiel, God will raise them from the dead and they will march into the land led by Moses who also didn't go into the land. I mean, I get choked up whenever I think about it. I just think that's so neat. But the idea here that God hadn't lost any of them, he knows where they're buried, he knows where they all are, and he is going to raise them all up and he is going to bring them into the land. And, oh, by the way, that includes the whole house of Israel, not just Judah. Then we have the stuff we read today. I'm not going to read it all unless you want me to. Happy to. So now I want to go down to verse 15 in Ezekiel 37. And this is, of course, the famous prophecy of the two sticks. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. So notice, it starts off that they're one in Ezekiel's hand. But as they come together, they become one in God's hand. So, one of the things that I'm not going to go into at any length right now, is Israel continues to have a use in the hand of God, even after the resurrection they become one stick in his hand, so they still have a purpose at that point. It does not just become one mushed together mass of humanity undifferentiated. Israel continues to have a function as Israel in the hand of God, even after their resurrection. And that's important, especially as it deals with things like replacement theology and Christian theology, because it's been my observation that lots of Christians become confused about that subject. Israel continues to exist as Israel, and they continue to have a function that God finds important because he is going to continue to keep them distinct in his hand. So I'm on verse 20, maybe, 19 and a half. And I will join it with a stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you wrote are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from 
all around and bring them into their own land. Now notice the pronouns here. Ezekiel is holding the two sticks. So God says, you hold them in your hand, and I'm going to say they're going to be one in my hand, and now we're going back to, you're holding them in your hand because you're a witness. But the ultimate goal here is the two sticks come together in God's hand and become one nation again. In 22, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So who is going to do the heart circumcision here? He is. Takes you back to Deuteronomy 30. Because after all this stuff that's going to happen to you that Moses prophesied, at the end of all of that, God will bring you back and he will circumcise your heart. It will be him who does it, not you. And the same thing is happening here. Verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Ooh, does that sound like Jeremiah 31? They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where their fathers live, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. Who is the other one who has a covenant of peace? Phineas. So 26 again. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So who will know? The nations. And who's going to roll over them? David. And I think that is going to be red-headed David, the guy that smacked the giant. I think it is going to be him raised from the dead, and he is going to be the actual literal king. But notice, back in verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. Is David the shepherd? Not necessarily. I happen to think that's a reference to David and Yeshua. Although you could argue that David was himself a shepherd. You could certainly make that argument, and I wouldn't snarl at you at all. But it feels to me like You've got a king, and you have a shepherd. And those are two different job descriptions. I think David will be the king over Israel, and Yeshua will be the shepherd over Israel. But Yeshua is also going to be king over all the earth, as opposed to simply king of Israel. So we've got Israel back in the land. What kind of cities do we have? Fortified cities, don't we? Remember, that was what happened back up in 36 that the cities that he's going to rebuild are going to be fortified cities. All right, so now we come down to chapter 38, Blog and Magog, Gog and Magog. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward God in the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against them, and say, Thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I am against you, O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. All right. I learned this years and years and years and years and years ago from Chuck Missler, and as far as I know, it's still true. I haven't learned anything different. The point he made is Gog and Magog are not modern nations, but the way God writes is whoever was there when he settled the land after the flood is the name of the region. So whatever piece of land that was gets called the land of Magog forever in God's economy, even though it may be modern Iraq, modern Iran, modern Russia, whatever. So what he's doing is he's talking to regions of the earth, the regions getting their names from the 70 nations that were separated from Noah after the flood. Josephus, in his history, and you can, it's not scripture, he equates Gog and Magog, or that area, to the Scythians. Scythians don't exist anymore either. So what you're talking about is the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in what is now southern Russia. One of the various stands up there. Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, I don't remember which, you got all those stands up there. That's the region that Josephus said is being spoken of. So anyway, the point is they're coming down from the north. Certainly you could see them being eastern Turkey. You could also see them being Iran, any of the stands over there. So that's what I know about Gog and the land of Magog. All right, so pick it up in 38 again now. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Meshach and Tubal being descendants of Noah. And prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, you and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put shall be with them all. All of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togermoth, from the uttermost parts of the north, with all the his hordes, many peoples are with you. Now Put is south of Egypt, and Cush is what we now know as Libya. So what he's going to do is he's going to get all of the people surrounding Israel, and notice he's going to put hooks in their jaws. That used to be what they would do to conquered people as they were bringing them back to be paraded in their hometown. They would literally put fish hooks in their mouths and drag them along. So this metaphor or this image is something that people of that time and that place would have been very familiar with. But the idea there is you're coming and you don't have any choice about it because I'm going to bring you here. Now, you may think you have a choice about it, but you really don't because I'm dragging you here with hooks in your mouth. Verse 7, be ready and keep ready, you and all your host that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered, and in the latter years you will go against a land that is restored from war, a land whose people are gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which has been a continual waste. Its people are brought 
out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance among them like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes, many peoples with you. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. Notice the things have changed because when God brought them back, he rebuilt the fortified places, didn't he? But now he's bringing this vast army against a land of unfortified villages. The point is, Israel has been brought back into their land. The fortified places have been rebuilt, yet this war is going to be happening at a time when there are no fortified villages. So that means to me that we're dealing with two different times. We're dealing with a time when they are brought back and you'll have fortifications. I am assuming at some later time you will have no fortifications because everything will be at peace. The place you want to find that is in Revelation 20. This is the millennial reign. So Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Skipping down to verse 7, we have the judgment between them, the millennial reign. Those who are raised in Christ and have the mark on their foreheads and reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who would deceive them was thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So the Gog and Magog war is at the end of the thousand-year reign. So what you have then is Israel restored to the land. They have one king, David, one shepherd, who I'm suggesting is Yeshua. Yeshua himself is going to reign over the earth for a thousand years, but everybody isn't going to come to Jesus. So what's going to happen then is you are going to have Israel back in the land, and I am suggesting with their hearts circumcised, so Israel continues then to be a stick in God's hand that God uses for that thousand-year period. At the end of that time, Satan gets turned loose, and it turns out that a lot of them did not have a come-to-Jesus experience, and in fact, enough of them so that you've got major armies coming against Israel. And by that time, after the thousand-year reign, the place is unfortified. I also interpret that Israel has things like Iron Dome, the missile defenses, all of the electronic stuff that they have, which are in fact stronger fortifications than mere walls. It would not have meant anything to the people of Ezekiel's time to say, we have radar out there, and we have laser-guided missiles. And as we get to 39, 
will talk about what that might mean in modern terms. They have confidence in the Lord and that they're not living in fortified cities anymore. Another way to describe it is they have beaten their swords into plowshares and they have turned all of their advanced radars and stuff into iPhones. Let me pick it up in 10. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. To seize spoil and to carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who gather all at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dadan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? The way I personally interpret this is when God has brought them back, has raised them from the dead, has put them in their land, has prospered them like he says he will, one of the things that God says over and over again is your enemies won't be able to stand against you. you know, one of you will chase, chase a thousand and you know, that kind of thing. So they are walking in God's ways. He is prospering them and he is defending them. The nations of the world look at that and say, easy pickings, because they don't have any more defenses. Got it? That's what I think. You may do with that whatever you like. Verse 14, Therefore, Son of Man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land, that the nations may know me, when through you, God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is sort of like what God does with Pharaoh. We're going to do all of this nasty stuff to you in Egypt so that everybody will know that I'm God. And so what he's saying here to God is, you get to be modern-day Pharaoh. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days to my servant the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. But on that day, the day that God shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath shall be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountain shall be thrown down and the cliff shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground I will summon a sword against God on all my mountains declares the Lord God every man's sword will be against his brother with pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstones fire and sulfur so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. That corresponds with Revelation 20 and verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
So in both cases, what God is saying is, you guys think that these people are not defended, but in fact, they are. You just can't see it. So chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against God and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward, bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north, and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you, I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on God and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. By the way, does that correspond with the destruction of Babylon? Remember, Babylon, Babylon is fallen, and the merchants in their ships look upon the smoke and weep because they no longer are going to get the profit that they had before? Don't know. That just occurred to me. So, the point is, the armies of the earth will come against the people of God, because remember, Israel is still one stick in God's hand. They still have a mission. And so they're living in security, safety, blessing, and peace. And when Satan gets turned loose and turns the nations against them, they look like easy pickings. And remember the, the merchants of the coastlands said, ooh, are you going to go up and get a lot of spoil? Like, we can broker that for you. And notice, by the way, that the coastlands get smacked. So even those who do not actively try and participate in the battle, who are hoping to profit from the battle, are going to be destroyed. No, we have the Battle of Armageddon. That's a different one. And you've all heard my 22nd summary of the book of Revelation. You've got seven seals, which authenticated that he owns the place. Then you've got seven trumpets, which the announcement of the coming of the king. Then you've got seven bowls of wrath, which is the king taking vengeance on his enemies. This is after that. I read Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 as covering the period you're talking about because in order for the stuff to happen with Armageddon and stuff, Israel has to be regathered. So the regathering process may take some amount of time. And there's all sorts of events that will happen during that regathering process as Israel gets back into the land and we get the heart circumcision and that kind of stuff. The Gog and Magog stuff, at least as I read Revelation, is at the end of the thousand years. So we're now in Ezekiel 39.9. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bow and arrows, clubs and spears. They will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down out of the forest, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. The way I would describe that in terms of modern warfare is it could be any of several things. Thing one is high explosives over extremely dense concentrations of energy. Has anybody here ever popped popcorn over C4? Well, that's what we used to in Vietnam. When I was an engineer, and they used to send me cases of C4 all the time. And you take C4 and you wad it up into little pellets, and you put it on the top of a beer can and light it, and it pops jiffy pop just great. 
If you screw up, it does burn through the bottom of the aluminum pan. But you develop the technique and you feed these little pellets of C4 onto the top of your beer can and you shake your popcorn and it pops it. So the point I'm making is explosives are an extremely dense form of energy, thing one. For example, we used to have an artillery battery with us all the time. And for artillery, you change the amount of gunpowder you put in the shell depending on how far you want to shoot. The powder comes packed in silk bags. For a 105 howitzer, you have seven silk bags per cartridge. And so if you're shooting for a short distance, you'll pull several of those out and cut them off and you'll only use maybe two of the bags for short range and then you use all seven for longer range. And what they would do every day after a fire mission is they would take all of the unused bags and throw them in a pit and throw a match in there and they'd light them off. The whole fire would last maybe a minute and it'd be done. So modern weapons are extremely energy dense is what I'm saying. The other thing that you have is the potential of nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons, again, are very energy dense. So the idea that you have a modern army that comes against Israel and gets destroyed, what they are leaving behind is tremendous amounts of energy, whether in the form of uranium or plutonium in nuclear weapons, or in the case of explosives or whatever. But the point here is that they brought so much energy into Israel that they don't have to cut wood anymore, which is to say they just burn up the weapons. In fact, there was a movie where Russia launched a missile at New York by mistake. And they called up and said, this is a mistake. We're not attacking you. We have not armed that missile. So just let it land. And what we've done is we've made you a present of several pounds of highly enriched uranium. On that, I'm down to verse 11. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers for their Gog and all his multitudes will be buried. It will be called the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will bury them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And it will bring them renown on that day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining in the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make their search, and when those travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers are buried in the valley of Haman God. Hamanah is also the name of the city. Thus they shall cleanse the land. So let's talk about what's going on. In modern warfare, depending on what kind of weapons you use, things can get highly contaminated. For example, in France, there is an area, and I think it's around where Verdun was, that is still to this day uninhabitable from World War I. The land is so contaminated with not only unexploded munitions, but various chemical compounds from those munitions, that the land is completely unusable. And it's a strip of land in France, I don't remember what it's called, but to this day, they can't use it. And this is a hundred years after World War I. So depending on what kind of weapons get used here, the idea that the people who were killed by those weapons would continue to present a hazard is perfectly understandable. I heard a preacher years ago, the whole purpose of turning Satan loose is to show that you've got two kinds of people. 
You've got the people, Israel, who have had God circumcise their hearts. Remember, they didn't do it. God did. Then you've got the rest of humanity who has uncircumcised hearts. And what that does is it gives the lie to things like evolution, which say we're getting better. Because at the end of a thousand years, living under the literal rule of Christ himself, at the end of that time, Satan is still able to take us and turn us against the people of God. To finish this up, let's go back to Revelation and let's go to Revelation 21. And this is the new heaven and the new earth. I'm going to pick it up at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God Almighty in the land. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in the new heaven and the new earth, the nations will still exist. They will be different from Israel. Israel is going to be in the city, the nations are going to be around the city. And the way I describe that is it's analogous to the way the camp of Israel is set up. You've got the presence of God in the middle, and you've got the Levites ministering to the tabernacle, And then you've got the rest of the tribes around it. Well, all of Israel now becomes like the Levites. And the nations are around it. Everybody there has made it past the great white throne judgment. Everybody there has made it past the lake of fire. Everybody there in the Baptist sense is saved. They are not Israel. Israel continues to be Israel, continues to be a stick in God's hand, if you will, continues to have a purpose that is unique. So they continue to exist even after all of this. It is not the case that everybody becomes one amorphous mass, much like what the Christians seem to believe. Israel remains distinct.